Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi there. I'm Nate Fisher, and this is Timeline Tapes, the history podcast made by the YouTube channel Timeline. Our channel has tons of extraordinary documentaries to enjoy, but we know that not everyone has the time to watch a full documentary in one sitting, so we're turning our favorite ones into podcasts that you can enjoy wherever you are. This week marks our final episode of the show for a while, so thank you to all our listeners who have joined us over the last year and gone down in history together with me and the Timeline team. Today we're traveling back in time to explore some of the most breathtakingly incompetent historic leaders, from the Crusades to Vietnam. In this episode we discover how lack of communication and misplaced sense of superiority caused tragedies and deaths of thousands of ordinary soldiers that could otherwise have been avoided. Narrated by Stephen Rashbrook, we discuss the British retreat from Kabul, the Boer War, Dunkirk, and the Falklands Campaign. is such a strain that rather like water will find a crack in a dam, war and the strains of war will seek out any flaws in someone's character and will break them. The uniqueness of war is its chaos, uh, in that as soon as the battle starts, things start going wrong, and the leader has got to somehow get control of that chaos quicker than his opponent. That my mind is the secret of success. Bad leadership gets people killed. And until you've seen a friend of yours loaded into a body bag and you don't even recognize the body, and later you're, you find out, well, that was him, then you see the consequence is very real and final. A leader is a magic salesman because a leader on the battlefield is selling the most difficult product in the world, and that is, come with me and die. History shows that there are three unpredictable factors that affect whether a leader is good or bad. 
First is the quality of those that join up. Second is the training of a leader to deal with battle stress. And third is the psychological makeup of the individual. At the Military Academy in West Point, America, they are trying to make the first of these factors more predictable through careful selection. Pick the right cadet and you can create a great leader. Pick a tough one and the weeds of incompetence will grow. predict the kinds of qualities that make successful officers and so we recruit against those qualities and abilities. We want to see young men and young women who are not afraid to sweat, not afraid of physical contact in the terms of sporting contact in soccer, football, basketball, those types of things. Why did I get selected? Because I'm a great person. I'm pretty well-rounded. I'm not just book smart. I can, I can, I'm pretty physically fit and I can play musical instrument. But we're also looking for the intangibles, if you will, the ability to operate under pressure, the ability to produce good quality work when things around you are chaotic or, or very ambiguous. And ultimately those that can set their own goals given somewhat fuzzy guidance, which tends to be the nature of the battlefield. What we try to do is, is develop a, a questioning intellect here, someone who's not afraid to ask the why or the can we do this better and if we need to do it better, what do we have to do to do it better? We can't look into an individual's heart. We can't look into their psyche to see if they're pure. If they've got the heart of a soldier or the, or the pure desire to serve for all the right reasons. We have sons of millionaires. We have uh, daughters of uh, single parent black families from some of the worst parts of the inner cities in the country. We have sons of members of Congress. You name a profession and it's represented, it's certainly not what one would consider the straight upper crust. It was actually not until the late 1890s that selection was based on merit. The 1800s was a time of strict social divide, a non-professional army, and larger marks of facial hair. The officers were often the second sons of wealthy landowners, or young guns of the aristocracy looking for adventure, great at leading in a waltz, but frequently hopeless in war. It was a very different army to the one we have today. You could buy your commission up to the rank of lieutenant colonel. And uh, there were no particular qualities which uh, people were looking for in officers other than probably um, the, the social graces. In the 1830s, the British Army was full of pucker gentlemen like General Elphinstone. With wealth, charm, and an aristocratic nose, he hadn't been selected so much as fallen into being an officer. It was no surprise to find him towards the end of his career, residing in Imperial India. But then he was told that he had to put off his retirement and take command of the army. The British Empire was firmly in control in India, but was about to reach north into Afghanistan to secure essential trade routes through the mountain passes. 
Because he was an affable chap, Elphinstone was perceived as the right man for the job. However, affability does not a great leader make. 1841, arrive Afghanistan. 1841, and one day, commit first blunder. Elphinstone positioned the army barracks, or cantonments, miles from the capital Kabul, isolated from supplies and open to attack. However, complacency and arrogance were the middle names of the British Empire, and they assumed they were invulnerable. Officers started to bring up their wives and children from India to join them, and there was a great deal of social life. There was a race course, and they had cricket matches, the regiments brought up their bands. Uh, one of the British cavalry regiments brought up its pack of foxhounds, and they established themselves in an imitation of peacetime life in a garrison in India or in England. They certainly didn't, I think, at any stage realize uh, how precarious the situation really was. The Afghans themselves were highly independent people who greatly resented the fact that the British were there. Elphinstone's second blunder was that he did not make the military presence felt. Elphinstone thought this was simply a political situation, his job to be the silent minder for the British envoy, William McNaughton, who was busy making deals with the Afghan tribes. Elphinstone wrongly assumed no flexing of his military muscles was required. Rather foolishly, Sir William McNaught decided that he was going to reduce uh, the subsidies which were being paid to the tribesmen between Kabul and India for keeping the road open. That was the real start of trouble because the tribesmen uh, between Kabul and India immediately started to attack British convoys and generally to cause trouble. The politicians had messed up bad. They had reneged on their financial agreements with the tribes and the tribes were seriously cross. This was now clearly a military situation and Elphinstone should have stepped out of the shadows and done his job. Instead, he did nothing about the random attacks and so offered no protection to the people he was supposed to be leading. This was his third blunder. The attacks became increasingly violent. to have dispatched a column of troops into the city, arrested the ringleaders, and uh, punished them accordingly. There is a story about Elphinstone's reaction to the trouble. He ran to jump on his horse, but being fattened up from easy living, he fell off. As one of the officer's wives wrote in her diary, he is as weak of body as he is weak of mind. He complained of rheumatism and gout not only very debilitating diseases, but they are very incapacitating diseases. And there were long periods where Elphinstone could really not get out of bed. And I think Elphinstone had simply become 
virtually a complete invalid, unable to uh, concentrate on the job in hand. Alphinston was taking no control over the chaos of war. The British became isolated, vulnerable, and increasingly dead. His inability to act with any authority was matched by an uncanny ability to make the wrong choice. Elphinstone had three uh, possible options. Uh, one would have been to stay in the cantonment and endeavour to defend the cantonment. The second option would have been to reoccupy the Bala Hissar, the great fortress uh, in Kabul, and defend that. The fortifications were infinitely superior to those of the cantonment. The third option was the option that they finally agreed, which seems on the face of it to have been the maddest of the lot, which was to try to retreat uh, to Jalalabad through the very tribes who had started all the trouble in the first place when their subsidies were cut. Elphinstone's fourth blunder was to decide to enter into negotiations with the Afghans in order to secure safe retreat. And his fifth blunder was when the envoy McNaughton went off to meet the Afghans Elphinstone forgot to send an army escort, and McNaughton was hacked to little pieces. Then his sixth blunder was that he thought the same Afghans would keep their word and help him out. Despite the carnage around him, he thought it would be a stroll in the park. British troops got ready to go. We must abandon most of our property. One friend was anxious to save a few of his valuable books. I found amongst the ones thrown aside some poems, and strange to say, one verse actually haunted me day and night. Few shall part, though many may meet. The snow shall be their winding sheet, and every turf beneath their feet shall be a soldier's sepulchre. They were 4,500 fighting men um, and about 12,000 followers, servants, families, hangers-on, not fighting men. The moment he left the cantonment, trouble started. Shots were fired at the last troops leaving. The cantonment was very rapidly ransacked. And from that point onwards, uh, Elphinstone and his men were really under constant attack. It was impossible for me to describe the feelings in which we pursued our way through the dreadful scenes that awaited us. The road covered with awfully mangled bodies, all naked. The sight was dreadful. The smell of blood sickening and the corpses lay so thick on the ground, it was impossible to look from them. Afghans were shooting down from the mountaintops. People were freezing to death. The stragglers and the wounded were hacked to pieces, beheaded, and disemboweled. In just 20 miles of mountain valley, tens of thousands of men, women, and children would fall in a complete bloodbath. One of the most horrific mistakes in military history was unfolding. Yet even as it did, its perpetrator went into denial. So bigoted are our rulers that we are still told the Afghans are faithful, that their leader is our friend. The retreat 
uh, started on the 6th of January, uh, Dr. Bryden reached Jalalabad on the 17th, and he was the last member of the column still on his feet. So in those 11 days, they had lost the whole 16,000 odd. Elphinstone's final blunder was to abandon his retreating troops and go off to the Afghans in order to broker a deal. The deal was never made. He was taken hostage and never came back. He died in May 1842 in captivity before the relieving army had reached Kabul. And Elphinstone, exhausted and ill, simply died. I think you have to say that Elphinstone was an incompetent commander. Today, an officer would have been tested all the way up the ladder, and if he had any serious defects, they would have been exposed long before he got anywhere near being a general. There's no denying Elphinstone was unfit to lead. But if there's any defense of him, there was no selection criteria, and the men like Elphinstone, who became officers, did so through social connection and being a good chap. Therefore, having no chance of dealing with the complexities of war, especially if they were like Elphinstone, a foolish, fond old man. The pressure war exerts on a leader is enough to turn a man of steel into a wobbling jelly. The second unpredictable factor that makes or breaks a good leader is whether an individual has been trained to cope with this pressure. Even if the cadet selected seems high caliber, it is not until you are in actual combat that you know how good you really are. Then, that discovery can cost lives. The modern military tries to eliminate this happening through training. The person who cracks is always going to be the person who's untrained. Everyone has a limit. You can certainly, during training, um, spot the ones who are probably going to make a complete nonsense of it. And you can usually spot the ones who are going to be very good there is, however, a large bunch in the middle who may appear excellent on training or very bad and turn out to be totally the opposite when it all starts happening. At the National Training Center in America, the future leaders of global warfare are being trained. At a cost of $190 million a year and using all the hardware available, battles are fought that are as real as possible. This is the certifying event to see if a leader is ready for war. Even though it's simulators and, uh, and other uh, pyrotechnics are, are, are taking the place of live artillery and all, they think this is real. And they're getting a good taste. Uh, the stress is up. The leaders, take, talk to the leaders. They'll tell you how they feel. When you get the mission, you know you're going to have to secure yourself no matter what, right? So don't wait for somebody to tell you in order. 
just flat do it. Five, six, five, six. Good flank. Good flank. You guys are good. You're kicking ass. Your battalion is kicking ass. I've been in uh, uh, Macedonia and Bosnia and two recent deployments, and I do, I do believe that the stress you, that you feel out here is as great or greater in some cases than a deployed uh, hostile environment. There isn't a challenge in any arena I can think of that uh, we'll, we will not encounter out here. Sleep, fatigue, the overwhelming enemy, distances of communication, up-tempo of the pace, being away from home in a deployed status. Everything is here, which makes it so realistic and so beautiful as a training ground for leadership. The theory goes that if you push people to their limits of stress, they will crack and make mistakes. If a leader is exposed to battle stress in training, then they should handle it better in war. There were mistakes made that uh, we have learned from each and every time. Everyone knows here that mistakes are made, we walk back and fight the next day. But believe me, we talk about the fact that if this were real, it wouldn't. Incompetence is where you are incapable of getting it right, and you're incapable of getting it right time after time after time. But one got to remember that commanders often, particularly when they've started, make mistakes. And certainly I made mistakes when I first commanded a brigade in battle, and I'm referring now to the Falklands War. What I tried to do was to learn from the mistakes and not repeat them. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Timeline Tapes. We're rejoining the show to hear about the extraordinary events of the Falkland Campaign in 1982, and why General Julian Thompson blames himself for the death of Lieutenant Colonel H. Jones, who died commanding the 2nd Battalion of the Parachute Regime at Goose Green. 
repeat them. When Britain went to war with Argentina over the Falkland Islands in 1982, General Thompson was made commander of the land forces. When the British invasion took place, he was given orders to take the capital Port Stanley by setting up a diversionary attack. The position he was in was outside of his experience. What he had learned in training about dealing with battle stress and whether he would crack was about to be tested for real. We'd been given a directive, which was that we were to hold the beachhead but press on out to cause damage to the enemy and lower their morale by attacking them. Now the only enemy that were reasonably adjacent was the enemy garrison of Goose Green and what I decided to do was to send the, the 2nd Battalion of Persian Regiment down there to capture it in order to keep their eyes off us while we got on with the business of getting to high ground around Port Stanley. I didn't give the battalion sufficient resources to carry out that battle because I regarded it as a diversion. I should have taken another unit down there and done a two-unit brigade attack. And also, one of the reasons I didn't give them one of the resources they asked for, which was light armor, was I didn't think that the light armor would get there over the very PT ground. In fact, I was totally wrong. It would have got there. The consequences of my error were that the battle lasted for 14 hours and took more casualties than it would have done had I done a two-unit attack with more support. The commanding officer of the 2nd Battalion of the Persian Regiment was killed, H. Jones, and uh, it was his death that I heard about over the radio, uh, and, and I was, I knew him, I'd worked with him before, but I couldn't allow myself at that stage to dwell on it or, or, or grieve over him, that came later. You have to push it down and let it out later. It would not have helped to have, to have broken down in my command post uh, in front of all my staff. Uh, they would have thought, oh dear, something is terribly wrong, uh, the boss is, is breaking down, and they would have probably have, have lost faith in me. I blame myself uh, for making those decisions. It was my decision and mine alone. And so I deal with it by uh, recognizing that I, that I made a mistake, uh, that I can't sadly bring him back, but that his battalion carried out the task absolutely brilliantly, that the, the objective was in the end achieved uh, by the spirit and, and the quality of the soldiers who carried it out. A man can have no greater love than to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. Julian Thompson was promoted beyond his level of experience, but not ultimately his level of competence. He made mistakes which he had the courage to admit. He was able to adapt and most importantly, he didn't crack. This was in large part down to how he had been trained to deal with battle stress. The recognition of how essential this training is has come from looking at the consequences of the late 19th century army when there was really no training at all. In those days, 
When a leader was confronted by battle stress, they would often break down. When General Redvers Buller died in 1908, he left behind a reputation for having cracked up. For him, the phrase, excellent major, mediocre colonel, abysmal general was coined. When a young officer, he had fought in Africa and proved himself a valiant and heroic soldier. Fiery and passionate, in fact his only problem then seemed to be channeling his energy in the right direction. He had a very bad temper and he knew he had a bad temper and he had the greatest difficulty controlling it. When he was about 16 years old in a game of rugger, he lost a match by going for his opponent instead of the ball and admitted afterwards that ever since that instance he'd done his best, often without success, to control his temper. In 1899, the British were at war with the Boers over land in South Africa. Based on his reputation for previous heroics, Buller was catapulted way beyond his level of experience to commander-in-chief. His limit of competence was about to be reached. There was a feeling that it would all be over by Christmas and that uh, Buller really ha only had to turn up. They expected a walkover and that Buller would lead a walkover into Pretoria. He did not particularly want the appointment. He had a comfortable, happy and busy retirement to look forward to. He had doubts, clearly, also, uh, as to whether he was, in any capacity, a good number one. I have always considered that I was better a second in a complex military affair than as an officer-in-chief command. I had never been in a position where the whole load of responsibility fell on me. Dear General Sir Redvers, just a quick note to say good luck, old boy. We're all relying on you. We know it's a bloody awful mess out there, but you are the right man to sort it out. By the time Buller arrived, three British towns had already been besieged by the Boers, uh, Ladysmith in Natal, and Kimberley, and Mafeking in Cape Colony. Um, in Ladysmith, there, there were about 15,000 British troops bottled up by the Boers, and that was the area where Buller, anyway, felt that the most danger was. Unused to creating overall strategy, Buller focused on the specific, something he thought he could deal with. He must go to Natal, take command there, and relieve Ladysmith. And Buller believed that the only way of doing so was to, to fight his way through the, the Burr siege lines. And the first time he tries it is at Colenso, and he tries a frontal assault. Frontal assaults in the face of modern weapons are not a terribly good idea. Stressed out by seeing his tactics go wrong, Buller did not have the training to adapt. The pressure was rising. He had seen everything go wrong which could go wrong at Clemson. He'd seen the guns lost. He'd seen the Irish Brigade suffer appalling casualties. So he was quite clearly in a state of shock. Immediately after Colenso, there is a substantial confidence crisis. Buller initially says he hasn't got the men to break through to Ladysmith. You know, he, he does contemplate surrender. Now that is something which would have been totally unacceptable. 
you're basically in an abattoir sending people forward to die. And you could reach a point where you think, what the hell is the mission? Why are these young people dying? I am the one responsible for this. And that could make you indecisive because you've lost the vital ingredient of leadership. What is it? Confidence. Buller's confidence was on the wane. This was to become known as Black Week as two other defeats swiftly followed. It was Buller's responsibility as commander and back in England it was assumed the great warrior had cracked. A junior officer, General Warren, was sent out to help him. The next battle at Spion Cop was to be Buller's most costly blunder. The plan was for one force to approach Ladysmith as a diversion, whilst the main attack moved through the valleys toward the town. Warren was in charge of one force, but overcautious he hesitated. As a senior officer, Buller should have given Warren orders to get on with it, but dithering himself, he didn't take the lead. Battle stress was taking its toll, and he was making his fatal mistake. Without any clear logic, Warren wanted to abandon the advance through the valleys and take the hill that's beyond Cop. Without any clear reason, Buller agrees, changing his plans randomly. He had spent several days thinking, shall I relieve Warren or shall I not relieve Warren? And he made then made the self-admitted error of not relieving Warren. There isn't a doctrine of command in the British Army until well into the 20th century. They don't really understand necessarily what the precise role of the commander should be. So on some occasions they interfere when they shouldn't, and on other occasions when they should intervene, they don't. Climbed at night, in fog, Spion Cop was taken with the little incident. Then in the morning, it was revealed that the celebratory troops were only on a plateau, overlooked by the higher hills and enemy rifles. Soon it was like shooting fish in a barrel, and the ground was littered with hundreds of British bodies. Bizarrely, Buller withdrew all other troops from positions where they might have been able to limit the massacre. He was frozen, crippled by a lack of confidence and the horror of seeing his men die. He had confronted battle stress, but he didn't have the training to deal with it. He had finally cracked. He knew that things were going wrong, and he knew he was committing a mistake. I ought to have assumed command myself. I blame myself now for not having done so. I did not because I thought that I should discredit General Warren in the estimation of his troops, and that if I were shot, and he had to withdraw across the Tukla, and they'd lost confidence in him, the consequences might be very serious. This was Buller's catch-22. He loved his men, and couldn't bear to see them die. But because of this, his action was hesitant, and that caused his men to be killed. Buller never had the ability to focus on the bigger picture that enables a leader to deal with the death of their men. Today, after decades of psychoanalysis, psychologists speculate and make vague theories to explain the man who said he was better suited to be second in command. Why would he have said that? My guess is that it's because he needed the support of someone else in the decisions he was taking and the actions he undertook, perhaps occasioned by his childhood. He had an affectionate family. His father was a slightly remote figure but he had a strong bond with his sisters. 
He was brought up by a very loving mother, who very sadly died when he was 16 years old. I think the issue for him was that even as uh, a general officer, he remained his mother's boy. And that was always going to limit how far he could go in decision-making and in objectivity. Whenever he felt he was not accepted by others, that was a terrible challenge to him. He did not have a true killer instinct. It's also his tragedy that, in a sense, he is placed in a position which he wasn't suited for. In 1900, General Roberts arrived from England to take over command, and Buller became his subordinate, returning to his level of competence. Having that burden lifted from him does enable him to concentrate much more on the task in hand, which is simply in the first instance to relieve Ladysmith. Ladysmith is relieved at the end of February of 1900. Buller fell prey to the second unpredictable factor. He was untrained to deal with the horror of supreme command. He was a great human being, but in the final analysis, unfit to lead, able to inspire men to follow him in battle, but when promoted beyond his level of competence, unable to lead them in war. War brings out the best in character, and it brings out the worst. Despite careful selection and extensive training, a leader can still fail if they have character flaws that come out on the battlefield. This is the third factor that affects good and bad leadership. The competence of some leaders will always be limited by their personality, and the worst flaw in a leader is ego. I found leadership enormously rewarding, and I wanted to be good at it, so that, if you like, is the ego bit. You want to be good at what you're doing. In fact, you'd quite like to be the best, though the chances are you may not be. There's two kinds of warriors. There's a warrior that's come up from the ranks, he's a straight shooter, he's a truth teller. The only reason he's in the military is to lead men, uh, to, to protect his country, He's filled with patriotism. And then there's the cold-blooded, calculating guy that's the staff officer that doesn't really care at all about his soldiers. All he cares about is himself. What must not be done is troops must not be sacrificed for the glory of the leader. In the case of, of combat, when those mistakes are made, young men die. They pay that ultimate price for somebody else's, you know, vainglorious ambition or stupidity. In November 1945, Britain's war with Germany was over. The Allied forces put the Nazi party on trial for war crimes. Hitler was dead. The Third Reich was finished, and Hermann Göring was the new Führer. Here was a man who seemed to have committed so many military mistakes during his career, it was amazing he could hold his head high as a leader. However, some of the British troops were grateful for these mistakes, because it meant they were still alive. As they retreated from Dunkirk in 1940, the German army was at their heels. 
Göring, the commander of the Luftwaffe, bragged to Hitler that his planes could kill them all without risking German soldiers. As his planes roared overhead, it became clear it was impossible to pick out soldiers running on a beach. A quarter of a million British got away. Göring's mistake had prevented an easy victory for Germany and the possible ending of the war. The world watched and puzzled at this man. Was he a blundering fool, a defeated warrior, or a psychopathic monster? Hermann Göring was not a lunatic. There were times about Göring when I enjoyed being in his company. He was not psychotic. Whenever I came into his room, oh, he would jump up and say, come here, sit beside me on, on the cot. He was just, I'm so glad to see you again. He definitely was not insane. You respected his, his courage, you respected his intelligence, you respected his sense of humor. So in a normal way of life, you would say, this would be a nice guy to have for a friend. But then you had to study his accomplishments and the way he rose to the top. And in that respect, then you, you see an almost dual personality. He may be difficult to understand in 1945, but now it's emerging that he is quite a complicated man. Goering was a fighter ace in the First World War, a national hero who professed an ambition to make Germany great again and believed that he was the main man with the qualities to do so. They give him an intelligence test and they found out that he was brighter than 99% of the population. On the uh, psychological tests, which were the inkblot tests, that's a test of personality. A psychologist asked the examinees, what might this be? And in Hermann Goering, a number of characters, flaws come together that really predict that he would be a very ineffectual leader. There's one famous response by Hermann Goering to card three, where he talks about these are two people arguing. An open figure of one man opened up with two identical halves and the insides in the middle. Maybe uh, they're debating heatedly over something. <laughs> Maybe two doctors arguing over the inner organs of the man. This was interpreted as, as Hermann Goering being Hermann Goering in terms of being arbitrary and aggressive. And, and then there's, there's red blots on the top. And he, he looks at them. There's red spots. I can't figure that out. I can't figure that out. I don't know what those things are. Damned if I know. And he flicks them away with both his hands as if they don't exist. And you don't have to be a psychologist to make the leap about how you, how you may have felt about people, racists, that he felt were inferior. I don't know what these are. Let's just get rid of them. So I think that's his biggest flaw, is that he had this narcissistic personality trait that really interfered with everything he did. He had a dream that ultimately he would be the supreme commander of a, of a Germany. So many of the decisions he made were influenced by his desperate need for personal gain, not because of strategic decisions about, about Germany at war. We think that, that his self-esteem was actually very, very low, that he probably wrestled with depression, and that this was a way for him to overcompensate and make him feel good about himself. You know, sometimes we go into a store and we buy something, we feel a little bit better, 
you know, we pull out our credit card and we say, oh, somehow I feel better. I acquired something, a ring, a book, something. He, he would acquire countries. He was, he was the, you know, he was the mastermind behind annexing Austria. You know, and that was sort of a, a coup for him. Following the conquest of Austria, Goering was off in the race to become master of the universe. And the German people loved him. He took every high-ranking job in the Nazi party, as well as becoming a six-star general. He was assuming the role of demigod, and he loved it. His personality characteristics cuts both ways. One, his sense of entitlement, narcissism, overinflated view of himself helped him in his career. I mean, the titles that he collected, you'd have to, you couldn't count them on two hands. But ultimately, it was his downfall because he was only interested in himself and didn't understand that ultimately, to win a war, you gotta put a whole team together, not only Hermann Goering against the rest of the world. Now this is the main point to understand Goering's personality and his incompetence. He liked uh, good living, good life, you know, wearing um, good-looking uniforms, collecting uh, pieces of art. So, in order not to lose his high positions, decisions were dictated by his desire to, to, to have a good life, to stay on top of society. Goering loved the power more than he accepted the responsibility. His hungry ego and fragile heart had to be satisfied. He spent more time plundering art and thieving personal wealth than he did in the war office. He was bound by a dangerous logic. I need power, I get power through Hitler, who I adore, I must not lose his favor or I will lose power. So he started to lie. He always confirmed Hitler in his eccentric uh, plans and wishes. This was his mistake as a military leader. Uh, I know one time of one incident when Goering took a model of a jet plane to Hitler and Hitler asked him uh, how many of these did he have. Well, he said he could produce 500 of these jet, jet planes. Well, Hitler then developed a strategy based on these 500 jets, which were not at all available at all. And, and so Goering bragged, he, he could exaggerate, he could lie with a perfectly straight face. He told Hitler his air force could wipe out the British in five weeks. He said he had destroyed the British defensive radar system. He said he had more planes than the Americans. All were lies. But for Goering, all that mattered was his relationship with Hitler. When Goering was born, the whole family, including the older brothers and sisters, went to Haiti for three years. There was no mother in the household, and, and maybe they never developed a real trust with a human being and never felt close to anybody really in, in the, the rest of his life. I think Hitler became his role model, what his mother didn't do, you know, because he was so, so weak in front of Hitler. So Goering made his biggest mistake. The Germans had advanced into Russia and were surrounded in Stalingrad. 
Hitler turned to Goering for advice without realizing the significance of listening to this fawning yes-man. The proposed Stalingrad airlift was the turning point of the war. The Sixth Army was surrounded, and one method of assisting a quarter million German troops in November, the winter is coming, was to provide air supply and airlift. A strategy was developed whether the German Luftwaffe would be able to carry out a mission like that. They calculated that to supply 250,000 men, it would require 700 tons to be dropped daily. That's unheard of. Goering said, I think we can do it. It appears feasible. He should have told uh, Hitler that we do not have enough planes, you know, but he didn't do this. And as we all know now, this turned into an incredible disaster. 6,000 Germans, only 6,000 Germans returned home. The defeated Stalingrad catapulted Germany into losing the war. This may have been as a direct result of Goering's ego, but on trial he still puffed himself up to be the leader of the new Germany, ignoring that the Nazi party was now defunct. At last he had obtained his dream, and he failed to see how hollow this was. For him to not understand what's going on, or at least to act like it, it is mind-boggling, but it shows you how robust this man was in face of, of, of economic distress, torture, concentration camps, the final solution, German troops, thousands of troops dying, didn't affect him. Remember Inkblot number three, just washes it away. He admitted that maybe some things he, he had done was wrong, were wrong, but they were necessary. In order to build the Third Reich, some things had to be done, like the persecution of the Jews. More or less, if I had to do it again in order to accomplish my goals, I would do it. He claimed he did it for Germany. I claim he did it for Hermann Goering. No apologies. If he had any regrets at all, it was that he would be hanged as a common criminal. That bothered him terribly. Let me stress once more that I feel not the slightest moral or other obligation to submit to a death sentence by my enemies and those of Germany. I proceed to the hereafter with joy and regard death as a release. I shall hope for my God's mercy. The entire effort to stop us doing harm to ourselves was never motivated by concern for our welfare, but purely to make sure that all would be ready for the big sensation. But count me out. In his cell, Goering committed suicide with a cyanide pill. He had cheated the hangman in a final flourish of narcissism. He had looked in the mirror and seen not a war criminal, but a fallen hero. And he had decided his death must be worthy of his life. He was trying to lay the foundation for him being, you know, thought of as a great German. He, he thought, if I position myself correctly, Every German will have a Hermann Goering statue in, in, in their household. Leaders don't have to be superhuman, but they have to be morally, mentally, and physically fit to lead. A great leader can achieve their goal with the minimum of casualties. A bad leader, that is someone who should never have been selected, 
someone who does not have the training to cope with battle stress, or someone driven by egocentric ambition, will lead people only one way, to death. Incompetence is, in my opinion, where you are incapable of getting it right, and you're incapable of getting it right time after time after time. Thinking that you're too smart, too knowledgeable about everything, being full of yourself, I think too much pride, refusing to take the objective, too much temper, uh, exploding and without drawing back and thinking carefully what the uh, objective is and how to attain it with the smallest amount of casualties. Loss of courage, loss of faith, loss of uh, hope, pessimism, um, loss of trust in his uh, subordinates and superiors. It's the moral qualities that get leaders in trouble. War hasn't changed a lick from the days of the Greeks, Wellington against Napoleon. War's exactly the same. Uh, the only thing that's changed about war is it's faster and more lethal. But those attributes that you need to be successful as a leader were as alive today as it was in 600 BC. Ultimately, the nature of war remains the same. It's a struggle between men and women in competing organizations, and it can uh, and will escalate to put the maximum demands on the people who are involved in it. And in that sense, leadership has a timeless quality about it. Thanks for listening to Timeline Tapes. That's our last episode for a while, and we hope you've enjoyed taking these documentaries with you whenever and wherever you were, from morning runs to journeys in the car. We'll see you again with a fresh season in the future. But for now, if you want to experience more stories like this one or any of our other episodes, you can find them on our YouTube channel, along with hundreds of other documentaries and series. If you want to reach out to Timeline Tapes, you can email us at timeline at little.studios.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Those are both at TimelineWH. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe to our future seasons. Give us a five-star rating and write a review, too. I've been Nate Fisher, and this has been Timeline Tapes. Let's go down in history together. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Confidence starts with loving who you are. 
And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.